2: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
1: Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. In Family Papers, A Sephardic Journey Through the 20th Century, Sarah Abravaia Stein takes us on a journey, but it is in fact several journeys. Yes, it's a Sephardic journey through the tumult and terror of war, displacement, and death at the hands of the Nazi regime, among others, but it's also a journey of fierce love and lasting commitment among the many descendants of one person, Sadi Besalel Ashkenazi Alevi, a printer, and publisher in the thriving Ottoman port of Salonika, today's Thessaloniki in Greece. Professor Stein, through access to a massive though dispersed family archive, paints a detailed and deeply felt portrait of one family. But this portrait is also kind of a sweeping cinematic view of the massive change and traumatic upheaval that beset Sephardic life in the 20th century. Sarah Abravaya Stein is the Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Director of the Alan D. Levy Center for Jewish Studies and the Maurice Amato Chair in Sephardic Studies at UCLA. She is also a two-time National Jewish Book Award winner and the recipient of the Sammy Rohr Prize for Jewish Literature. And Family Papers has itself won wide notice, being named, among other things, one of the best books for 2019 by The Economist magazine. Sarah Abravaia-Stein is with me today to discuss Family Papers, Professor Stein. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, family Papers, first of all, is a remarkable book. It's uh, it's meticulously researched, and objective, but there's almost a kind of loving quality that develops. Um, it feels between you, the author and researcher, and the family. If not in, in absolute, in practical terms, in sort of metaphysical terms, it feels as though you almost become a member of this family. I guess my first question then is a very subjective one. How how did your feelings change and develop as you worked on this project uh, regarding the family?
0: Well, it's a wonderful starting point. Thank you for that uh, insight and question. Um, it, this is an intimate history uh I am trying to tell a family's history from the inside so to speak through members of the family by thinking about their intimate lives by reading their most intimate documents the letters they wrote to one another and sometimes the letters that they drafted and never sent and this this intimacy I thought required a different kind of voice than I have employed in other of my books. Um it really required me to think about them not just as historical actors but as human beings, as people in relationships. And I think that you are right to some extent that I entered into relationships with them after spending months and many years reading their words, trying to understand them as well-rounded individuals. Um mm-hmm. And my relationship to them did certainly change the longer I, I lived with them, the longer I read and reread their letters, the longer I thought about them, the more narratively I tried to get inside their lives. Of course, some of these historical characters I felt closer to than others. Some were really difficult to work with. There are heroes, there are anti-heroes. Um And so I do believe that there was an emotional arc of writing for me. Um, The other thing I would mention is that, as I describe in the book, I could not have written this book without the assistance, the generosity of the living descendants of this family who opened me, who welcomed me into their homes and opened their collections to me and shared their memories with me and made me feel a part of the family. And so... It wasn't just an intimacy I felt with the historical characters, nor indeed a sense of debt to their legacy, but also a very palpable sense that I had a relationship, I continue to have a relationship to this family. And they, strikingly, now because of the book, have a relationship with one another where none existed before. So I think that you're right, um, as a starting point, that this is a very personal, intimate book that demands, the reader demanded that I think really deeply about who these people were and uh, also forced me to really feel them in a way that historians aren't always willing to feel their subjects.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I wonder too, if you could talk a little bit about how the project developed, because you've you you you've written about um, the Holocaust in North Africa, you've written about specific types of commerce that the, uh, that Ottoman Jewish communities or Sephardic Jewish communities were involved in. Uh, you've written about Saharan Jews, uh, in, in French Algeria. Uh, and you've written about the question of citizenship for Ottoman Jews. This feels almost like a summation of all those things put together, Mm -hmm. but how did the project begin? How did it take root with you? And what, what sent you down the path to do this work?
0: Well, I have throughout my, writerly career been thinking about modern Jewish lives and the relationships between Jews, the relationships between Jews and states and Jews and labor and commerce and and law. Um, And for me, this is a new foray into thinking about the family, what the family meant to Jewish history, to modern Jews, to Sephardic Jews, and to this family specifically. Um, the genesis was that this book followed on the heels of another, although with a, roughly a decade delay, because I began asking questions about this family after publishing a book in 2012 with my colleague and friend and former teacher, Aaron Rodriguez, uh, working with a wonderful translator, Isaac Drew who who um, joined us in an endeavor to bring to English language readers a, a translation and a transliteration. Of the first Ladino or Judeo Spanish memoir ever to be written, which was written by Sadi Bessalel Alevi over the course of some decades in the mid to late 19th century. And he dictated this and edited it, dictated it to a scribe. He was an editor, he was a writer, he was a printer, he was a singer, he was a man of intense feelings, uh, sometimes of intense paranoia. And he saved this manuscript there was only one copy and it was passed to his children and it traveled from his home of ottoman salonica which is current day thessaloniki greece it traveled from there to paris to rio de janeiro to jerusalem mostly through family hands before finally ending up in an archive in jerusalem and as we finished this project to bring these words to english language readers And also, I should say, to use it as a tool for students who want to study Ladino in its handwritten form of solitreo, in transliterated form as well, and in translation. As we finished the project, I had questions, and I had questions about how the manuscript had traveled this extraordinary journey in the face of so much loss and destruction and dispersion of the family and the community through the end of an empire, through world wars, through a, a massive fire which upended the city of Salonika, through the family's dispersal across boundaries and countries and continents. And I set out to see what I could find about what had become of this family that allowed this manuscript to survive and to travel the extraordinary distances it had. And it was really that question that launched a roughly decade-long journey, which led to this book, um, and first led me to a series of collections of family papers held by family members, really across the globe, uh, which I referred to a few moments ago. And those were the sources, uh, supplemented by a lot of archival digging I did in, you know, formal institutional archives that allowed me to tell this uh, intimate history of the 20th century.
1: Three continents, nine countries. Just as a fellow researcher, I'm amazed and must ask, how did you do this? How did you find the time and the resources to pull all these threads together?
0: Well, um, it did take time. It took perseverance. It did take resources. And I'm very fortunate to be at a university supported by an endowed chair in Sephardic Studies that has allowed me, the Maurice Amato Chair in Sephardic Studies, to do so much digging into the Sephardic past. And this kind of labor isn't just intellectual, it is also logistical. Um, I think, in addition, there is um, a rather more ineffable quality of um, of looking and of following a lead and of following um, an instinctual response, an almost visceral response to a project. And I've always been interested in histories that cross boundaries and whose telling requires us to recuperate diverse voices that have been saved in diverse ways and forms. And so this was a project that the the more I looked, the more I realized I was compelled to dig. And of course, if you wish to tell the history of a globally diasporic family, you have no choice but to be globally uh, peripatetic in your research method. Uh, And so one find led to another find, which led to another. And with each successive discovery, what was so interesting is that each new voice, each new source, each new branch of the family that I was able to unearth led me back to the sources I had already been gathering and compelled me to read them in new ways. Because family documents, like any document really, they hold secrets Um, Sometimes they conceal truths. Um, Sometimes they are written in an implicit or subtle fashion. Um, And they tell the stories that people feel they wish to tell about themselves. They feel safe to tell about themselves, um, which isn't the whole story. And so each find allowed me to reread the uh, earlier finds and interpret them in this more uh, rich and multifaceted vein.
1: Did you find yourself and believe me, I, I have questions written down, but so many other questions arise as you're speaking. It's so fascinating. And I just wonder on a personal, on a human level, did you find yourself cast into the role of ever of sort of mediator or therapist between branches or individuals in the family as these new sources were wound together by you?
0: Well, there is direct and indirect mediation. I think one of the things that was incredibly striking to me through these years of researching, and it's still actually quite extraordinary to me, is that as I was journeying between branches of the family, between countries and communities and speaking to them in different languages and looking at different sources, through that process, no one ever asked to be put in touch with their extended relatives. And I thought that was extremely interesting given mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that genealogy is, is a burning passion for many families and the online tools of online databases and uh, research um, software and so forth, is is used so zealously by so many families, especially, I think, by Jewish families. But through the research process, I was not asked to play that role. And yet, after the book was published, the family has begun to forge reunions across these incredible divides. And so the book generated a life of its own, Mm -hmm. that somehow the research process did not. And now we have branches of the family in Brazil, in Israel, in England, in Canada, who are beginning to develop a relationship which had a familial relationship, which had frayed since, I would say, roughly the 1960s. It's difficult to date because there's Mm -hmm. different stories in every context. Um, Because of the book, they are beginning... I would say, to see themselves as family once again, um, which which is uh, a pleasure for me and um, an unexpected result of this research. There is also, as I mentioned a moment ago, a kind of informal mediation, um, which one engages in through the reading and analysis of different sources, um, because... Uh, like all people, the people in this family, the extended Levy family, members of the family had varying reactions to the same events. They um, had different emotional relationships to one another. And there was a kind of historical mediation that I was forced to undergo in trying to understand a person, not just as they represented themselves and not just as they were addressed by, for example, the person closest to them, but how they were thought about by other members of the family with with whom they were in touch and those that they had fallen out of touch with. So that is a different kind of human mediation that takes place through both um, historical digging and also historical analysis And finally, through narrative. Um, So it was very much on my mind that this was a kind of sewing together of as comprehensive a history as I felt I could write without Mm -hmm. straying from the um, documentary trail. Right. Uh, I wonder if
1: you'd um, explore with me a little bit, what is particularly Sephardic? about this story. For example, uh, it strikes me that aside from sort of the, the, more, the more obvious um, pressures and catastrophes of, of persecution, dispersion, immigration, family crisis, there's also a, a certain um, kind of, uh, uh, for example, the printing trade, there are certain trades that people are involved in it seems in my much more limited knowledge to be broadly associated particularly with Sephardic communities. But you call this book a Sephardic journey. And I wondered if if you would talk a little bit with me about what makes it a Sephardic journey?
0: Yes, another wonderful question. Thank you. There are many ways in which the history of this family is generalizably Jewish. Um, the way that they encountered the 19th and the 20th century, the the fall of old regimes, the rise of new states, wars and conflict, the fact of being uh, refugees or um, subjects of um, an occupying state, their encounters with new states and things like conscription for the first time, and much more, their histories of migration, struggles with acculturation. and of course, their experience of the Holocaust. In all of this, the book is telling a Jewish history, and one could imagine that it could be called Family Papers, A Jewish Journey Through the 20th Century, and it Mm -hmm. is that. Mm -hmm. And yet, while there are many histories, many epic family sagas about Ashkenazi families, we really lack such a work for the Sephardic world. And I wanted this book to fill that hole. And additionally, it's clear to me that while they are Jewish in um, broad senses, they are also, this family is also deeply Sephardic and Mediterranean and and Ottoman in their cultural makeup, in their language history, in their religious and spiritual practices, um, in their migratory trajectories. In the specific ways and timeline that they encountered the Holocaust. So there are details that one could dismiss as frivolous, but that are essential to their Sephardicness. Um, the fact, for example, that when um, we mentioned before the memoirist Sadi Betzalel Ashkenazi Alevi, when his um, son, Dauta Effendi, uh, experiences the birth of a first grandchild. That man's wife, Vida, and they both figure as characters in this book, um, hears the news that their son has had a child uh, in a very fancy spa town in Germany. And what does she do? But she commissions a kameya, a, an amulet, um, which is unique to the Sephardic world. She commissions an amulet, of blessings and good luck um, by a, 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 a probably a rabbi or a figure who had training um, in her local city in producing spiritual goods. And she sends this amulet to her new. Born grandchild in the spa town of of Weisbaden. Mm. So this is an example. Again, one could dismiss it as frivolous, but the point is the particularity of their cultural experience, the names they gave their children, the languages they spoke at home, the way they intermixed languages in their letters and in their prayers. um, In this and in so much else, they are they bear the imprint of Sephardic culture. And I thought that we need their story to offer us a modern Sephardic saga um, that will allow us as readers and students of, of Jewish history to um, appreciate what Sephardic culture meant on the day-to-day level and in the intimate fashion of of people's ordinary lives. How
1: common... In Sephardic families, as far as you know and have researched, was the keeping of archives. And what is particularly unique about this archive is it its, you know, geographical spread or its uh, thoroughness or its sheer size. Could you talk about what Absolutely. Sephardic families sure. have kept and what's unique about this this particular archive?
0: Right. Well, I want to specify first that there isn't a single archive of right, this extended right. family, the Levy family. The family papers I refer to in the title are maintained in in smaller collections. Some are quite large, but they are maintained by families in cities and countries around the world. And um, as you mentioned earlier, these private collections are spread across nine countries and three continents. The largest, which is in Rio de Janeiro, is um, kept by the grandchildren of the person who amassed it. And it was of a really astonishing size, by my count, some 5,000 handwritten and typed documents of a variety of genres. But then there are small collections and smaller collections and really quite tiny collections, Uh um, as well as medium-sized ones kept by families um, that I have turned up in, in many countries I, if you if you'll forgive me, reading the list, in, they come Please. from Brazil, Canada, France, Germany, Great Britain, Greece, Hungary, Israel, Italy, Portugal, and the United States. Not only family-owned things, but also supplemental sources that I was able to retrieve from archives. So this isn't a single family, but I think a single collection. But I think your question is a, is an important one. And here is how I would answer it. I would answer it in two two ways. First, the family I am writing about, the Levy family. Originally, this was a family of writers and printers and editors, a family of teachers, um, of uh, community officials, people who valued the written word, men and women, whose lifeblood and whose legacy was to disperse words. And they Believed in words and they saved words. Now, this is not to say that everyone in the family was, um, you know, an intellectual luminary, not at all. Right. But I think there was an inheritance in this family, a sense of fealty to documents that pushed them to preserve even documents written in languages that they no longer read. The second answer I would give to your question about whether this is unusual, what I found is I would say that um, across archives around the Jewish world and museums and libraries and institutions, while there has been um, a rigorous attempt to document the history of Ashkenazi communities, it's really only very recently that there have been concerted efforts to preserve the documents and the objects of material culture and the photographs of the Mediterranean Jewish and Middle Eastern Jewish past. Mm-hmm. And so for many families of this background, the, the most treasured materials remain in family hands where other families might, Ashkenazi families might have donated them a generation or so before. And mm-hmm. so I, I do find while the, while the Levy family is unique I am shocked at how much material continues to be held by families and uh, perhaps by local institutions. Um, And in many cases, it is vulnerable and fragile. And I think of these as endangered archives of um, Mediterranean and Middle Eastern Jewish culture.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: I don't know if it's even productive to to ask such a generalizing question, but is there a different feeling, uh, or an element of suspicion, or just a preference for privacy amongst in Sephardic culture amongst Sephardic families that would that would cause them to hesitate to take the kind of institutional route that so many Ashkenazi families have taken in donating their papers and effects, for example.
0: Well, here we get into the complex question of what Sephardi means. In right. this book, I'm I'm really talking about um, the Judeo-Spanish heartland of Southeastern Europe, of the communities of Jews who were descended from um, those Jews who were expelled from medieval Iberia in the 1490s, but who came to the Ottoman lands and called it home for the next five centuries. Mm -hmm. Those Judeo-Spanish Jews, those Sephardic Jews, I would say, do not have an inhibition about preserving material, sharing material, uh, donating material, uh, partnering with um, institutions and I, I have a project like this at UCLA and my colleague Devin Nar has a project like this at the University of Washington the Holocaust Museum is now embarking on this effort to document Sephardic history as is Yad Vashem I could mention other institutions this community is not loath to engage in those partnerships other communities I would say there is a sense of caution and we have to understand that this caution comes from very real and pressing historical factors. Um, Namely, there has been a pillaging, honestly, of artifacts and documents from the Middle East, not only Jewish ones, but non-Jewish ones as well, that has a long history, um, at at least to the 19th century, but certainly beyond that as well. Um, Many prominent institutions are built on what we now understand to be stolen material mm-hmm. much of that was wrapped up in histories of empire and imperialism and, and colonialism again this is not a jewishly specific story but it has a jewish dimension that there are communities in the middle east and mediterranean who feel that their sources were were taken from them um un- unethically um, this continues to be a very sore subject for living communities and for diasporic descendants of communities that have um, more or less fallen apart in their home location. Now, mm-hmm. again, this is actually not so of the family and of the community I describe in this book, but I think there is a larger history we should be aware of Um That reminds us how sensitive it is to work with community documents and family documents and how carefully the historian has to proceed to uh, build a relationship of trust, to make transparent the goals, um, to honor those people who hold the materials, and I think also to not approach them necessarily with the goal of acquisition which is something that I never did. I've never uh-huh. asked for any of these materials. I I believe I will happily help the family if they ever wish to entrust them somewhere, but I respect their relationship to these materials and um and also the way they have stewarded them for so long.
1: Could you talk a little bit about the development of the Jewish community and the and the You know, just near destruction of the Jewish community of Salonika, how and when it developed, um, where its Jewish residents came from, and how and over what period of time they came to play a really prominent role in the development of that city, um, even as it lay on a kind of geopolitical fault line.
0: Of course. Um, so their home, Ottoman Salonika, as I describe in the book, is uh, was an extraordinary Jewish community. Um it was a diverse Jewish community and it was a numerous Jewish community. So at the time that Saadi wrote his memoir that I described before, Jews represented somewhere between sixty thousand and hundred thousand of the city's residents. And that meant, so this is the nineteenth century, that meant roughly half of the city's population was Jews. Mm-hmm. And what that in turn meant is that, and the majority of them were Sephardic. So what that in turn meant was that if one were traverse, to traverse the streets of Salonika in the late 19th century, one would be more likely to hear Ladino speak spoken than any other language. But this community was in fact internally diverse. Um, not only Jews who hailed from um, from medieval Iberia, but It, of course, was home to Muslims, to Dunmei, to Greek Orthodox, to other Christians, and to Jews of other backgrounds, Italian Jews, some Eastern European Jews, Sephardi Jews who had different trajectories. But the point I think that's really important to make is that this city, which was the third largest port in the Ottoman Empire, feels like a Jewish city for so much of its history, and certainly in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was remembered by its um, Jewish population as the Jerusalem of the Balkans, and it was Jewish culture and Salonican culture were so inextricable from one another. Um, now the Ottomans lose control of Salonica after the Balkan Wars of 1911 1912, and it becomes the city becomes Greek, and after 500 years of Ottoman rule. The city is now a Greek city and will be aggressively remade, relandscaped streets, relabeled histories, rewritten to erase both its Jewish and its Muslim past. Mm. Um, And Jews respond to that transition in different ways. Some choose to leave. Some choose to stay. um, Some choose to kind of take a middle point and take a passport of a foreign country, but maybe to stay or maybe to go. Um, There were, in this family, the Levy family, people who, who took all of those routes. Some emigrated with the intention of never coming back. Some left with the intention of returning. Some stayed and took on foreign passports just in case they would have to leave. Others stayed and fully invested in uh, the Greek Jewish community. And one of those was um, Sadi's son, the who under the Ottomans had risen to a position of prominence as the head of a local passport bureau. Um, but under Greek rule becomes the most important person besides the chief rabbi in the Jewish community of Salonika, the chancellor of the community. And this mm-hmm. shows us something about the importance of this family to this community, and he will um, be one of the oldest members of the Jewish community of Salonika to be deported to Auschwitz and to die in the gas chambers uh, in his 81st year.
1: His is a particularly tragic story. Uh, And and he is a sort of, uh, I see him, uh, I experienced him as a sort of tragic hero in the book. And there is also uh, a sort of tragic villain in the book. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about Vital Hassan and his story and and how and to what extent it's been absorbed or erased by the larger family.
0: Sure, I I will. Um, and I'll pause first to lay a bit of the framework. Uh, and that is to say that um, the Jewish community of Salonica and the Jewish community of Greece, more generally, suffers among the highest death rates in uh, the Holocaust of any community in all of Europe. Now, other communities would, would lose more people to annihilation because they were larger. But in terms of percentage, the destruction in Salonika um, is um, of staggering scale. So as I proceeded to write this family's history, of course I knew I would be writing about the Holocaust era and I would be writing about loss. And there is tremendous loss, not only of those who are in Salonika, uh, who are deported mostly to Auschwitz where they will die. Um, additionally, there are Jews, in, there are members of the Levy extended family who have emigrated to other places in Europe where they will fall within the Nazi dragnet and be deported to death camps or to labor camps in the East, especially Paris, which had the largest um, collection of family members outside of Salonika during the war. That is to fall under Nazi rule. But there is also uh, a really shocking discovery that I made in the course of this research, that a member of the family um, abetted the Nazi deportation of the Jews of Salonika as the head of the Jewish police of that city. His name was Vital Hassan. And um, he is a vicious sadist whose crimes, according to many, many testimonies of survivors in many languages, in Greek and French and Ladino and Hebrew, in English and French, his many crimes are of astonishing excess, uh, including... Um, rape and sexual humiliation and the hunting down of those who have tried to hide or flee um and and much much more the prostitution of women to others um he is um after the war after many astonishing twists and turns he is arrested and returned to a newly liberated Greece for trial Uh, And he proves after the war to be the only Jew who is tried as a war criminal and ultimately killed by a state, that state is Greece, uh, because of his crime of uh, complicity with the Nazis. Now, there is Vital himself, but as you know from reading the book, there is the question of what happens to Vital's intimate family, his close Mm -hmm. family, who um, must also weather his excesses. And some of them will perish in the course of the Holocaust. And some of them uh, will survive and carry that trauma with them into the post-war era.
1: Including his daughter, who is one of several really remarkable, remarkable women in the book. And I I wonder if, um, if you can talk about, uh, some of the women, especially in the book, who strike me as um, pillars of family continuity. For example, while Leon seems to be the most um, sort of uh, compulsive correspondent and and natural archivist, um, there are women who correspond, who learn trades, who hold down jobs, who uh, who force their way into very productive situations by dint of sheer will. And I'm wondering if you can reflect on, on the nature of the, uh, of the women in the family. And in particular, if you can identify one whose story really sort of uh, uh, illuminated for you, uh, the Sephardic woman's experience.
0: Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, And it was indeed one of the um, pressing agendas that I brought to this book to have the women loom as large and as vivid as the men. And it is true that in some cases, the men left a much more robust paper trail. Not always, but sometimes that was true. But the women in this family um, journeyed remarkable trajectories Um, there is a woman who as a young teenager in the mid late 19th century, um, she was scarcely 16 traveled from her home of Ottoman Salonika to Paris to be trained as a teacher by the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which was a French Jewish philanthropy that created schools for Sephardic and Mediterranean, Middle Eastern Jews, um, to train them in, um, in uh, a middle-class and secular fashion, according to the sort of French educational norms. And she herself served as a teacher, sometimes on her own and sometimes with um, her husband, who also served the organization, a- just a- across a huge swath of the Mediterranean and Middle East. Um, on the other hand, there, going forward in time, there is uh, the remarkable figure of Julie, who is the sister of Vital Hassan, the war criminal I mentioned a moment ago, um, who I was extremely captivated by, uh, who served as a secretary to her beloved uncle, Daoud Effendi, um, through the interwar period when he was head of the Jewish community of Salonika. Uh, during the Second World War, is sent not to Auschwitz with the bulk of the community, but to Bergen-Belsen because she is a relative of someone in the Jewish police and she survives Bergen-Belsen and comes back. And in an extraordinary chapter of this community's history and this family's history, what she finds upon her return to Salonika is that she faces recrimination by the community for uh, abetting her brother and merely for having survived in Bergen-Belsen. Um, and is publicly shamed and humiliated and and indeed deprived resources of the community for this relationship. And by the, and the way, that was a part of the story light.
1: I had not been mm-hmm. familiar with. That survivors of Bergen-Belsen were sh- were were shamed in this way. It was it was absolutely astonishing to read this. This aspect of it. It
0: is an astonishing story, and it's astonishing to try to grapple with the chaos that met the survivor community in Salonika in the immediate aftermath of the war. So we have to imagine in our minds that there are some returning from Auschwitz, there are some returning from hiding, there are some returning from serving with the partisans, and there are some returning from Bergen Belsen, where rates of survival were higher than they were, of course, for those. Interned in Auschwitz, interned and annihilated in Auschwitz, and within that co- the, that community of survivors, there were many trajectories of distrust. And it's not only that those from who survived Bergen-Belsen were distrusted because they had gone to the so-called cushy camp, and because they, many of them, had a relationship with the Jewish police. Those who worked with the Partisans or who survived in hiding, there are there are oral histories that teach us they could not believe the stories of those who survived Auschwitz because they were unbelievable stories. They were, they were literally the incredible. Their horror was yeah. truly unbelievable. So there was a, a chaos and um, Julie was caught up in the swirl of that chaos. And I found her story incredibly compelling. And, and these two women are, are two of the women through you know seven generations whose lives I try to paint um, with a vividness that I would say in Jewish historical sources generally tends to be reserved for men, and it was very important mm-hmm. for me to um to tell a different kind of family history and in that vein um I have sort of two questions that i 'd
1: like to conclude our talk with, but the fact is i i 'm not happy about concluding our talk because i 'm finding <laughs> it so fascinating one is um how does the experience of of working on it and concluding this remarkable project, cause you to reflect on your own experience as a researcher, a woman, um, a scholar, and a and a person of Sephardic descent. How has it changed your view of your own story?
0: I think it's taught me how many intimate histories we still have to tell and. Um the history of Sephardic women remains a really underattended to facet of the whole, although um, there are some of us um, who have who have tried to excavate this history and bring it to light. So I think that the book leaves me, while it is a complete story, it, it leaves me thirsting for more such stories because the Sephardic world was a world of diversity. And if we were to look to a different community, a different family, um, a different moment, the stories that would be yielded would be entirely different. Uh, And to me, this is what is so compelling, not only about Jewish history, but about Sephardic history, Mm -hmm. its inherent diversity, um, and also the surprising fact of how much remains to be uncovered, archivally speaking, and how much remains to be told. And and finally, uh, you ask
1: some really compelling questions throughout the book, but especially at the beginning and the end, where you reflect on um, how sort of potentially impoverishing are our current modes of communication. In other words, because so much is flattened into the sort of two-dimensional world of um, electronic communication, <clears throat> while in a way everything is being preserved In another way, nothing is really available and it sort of lacks the tangible, immediate and intimate aspects of so much of what you found in the course of researching family papers. Um, Can you reflect a little bit on uh, how you see the work of the archivist and researcher changing as, uh, as we go forward?
0: Well, I suppose it is for future historians to tell us how they will manage the preponderance of data that we produce, um, minute by minute, hour by hour, the tweets, the texts, the the emails, the TikTok posts, etc., okay. and so on. Um, but for me, this book, as much as it was a meditation on what family means, and what holds family together, and when a family ceases to become a family over time. As much as it was all that, it was also a meditation on what we have lost along with the art of letter writing. The book is also very much a meditation on what we have lost with the art of letter writing. And having lived with the letters of this family for so long and having read them and reread them and read between their lines and read the secrets they didn't want to tell based on discoveries of other sources. I think that there is something unique about the letter and about correspondence, correspondence that takes place. Sometimes it takes days to write a letter. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes that letter reaches its source immediately Sometimes, perhaps in a time of war, in this period, it could take weeks to to reach its mark or not reach its mark at all. Um, for all of these reasons, and because of the care that they invested in letters—the writing, the rewriting, the reading, the rereading—there's one conspicuous letter here that's stained with tears. These were more than the fleeting product of a tweet. These were were documents that required an intensity and an intimacy and a care that I think we no longer apply to our daily communication. And, and therefore, I have come to conclude that our emotional relationships, not only with one another, but with the, our relationship to words has shifted. The Levy family held letters as an inheritance letters bound them together when blood and belief no longer did. And I don't think that our words serve that function anymore. As much as we will offer the future historian, I don't think she will find in those words that kind of intimacy. And so family papers is an elegy for a family, but it is also an elegy in a sense for that art of letter writing
1: really, really amazing um, meditation on which uh, to conclude this interview. Um, I've so enjoyed speaking with you. My guest today has been Professor Sarah Abravaya-Stein. We've been talking about her book Family Papers, A Sephardic Journey Through the 20th Century. Uh, Professor Stein, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.